If you are a born-again Christian and you are running in the opposite direction, or if you claim to be a born-again Christian and you are running in the opposite direction and God doesn't come after you, you've got your families mixed up. You're not really one of His. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Recently, we began a new series going through the book of Jonah. In this series, Pastor Carl examines both the historicity and the relevance of this great book. And today, he'll be examining how those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Let's join him now in Jonah chapter 1. Take God's word, would you turn to the prophet Jonah chapter 1. Be careful in finding it. If two or three pages stick together, you could easily miss it. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms, that's about dead center, and then scan to the right, and you'll soon hit this little book. He is in that section called Minor Prophets, after the major prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And uh, Jonah, he is a prophet that has a message for us today. This is the third of what I project to be 10 messages from this prophet. He's called a minor prophet since the fourth century. And by minor prophet, please understand, it doesn't mean that he's unimportant or less inspired. It was a term used to designate the length of some of these prophets. So there are four major prophets giving us five books. Then there are 12 minor prophets prophets, a designation, some attributed to Augustine in the fourth century, but we certainly have it since that period of time. In fact, at one point, the 12 were on a single scroll, and the length of that one scroll with 12 prophets was actually shorter than even the prophet Isaiah. So it's because of their length. Now, as we approach this prophet, We have seen that there are several approaches people have taken to try to understand and apply this book. Some just see it as fiction. More and more today, they just see the whole Bible as fictional. And this is just a cute little bedtime story like Goldilocks in the Three Bears. Certainly not. Others say, well, it's a parable. It's an illustration. It's a story with a spiritual message like the parable of the prodigal son. But grammatically, we studied in the introductory sermon that this has none of the features of a parable. Still others, looking for deeper meaning, yet wanting to deny the miraculous nature of Scripture, say it's an allegory, but it doesn't have any of the characteristics of an allegory. People who adopt these false interpretive views to approach Jonah do so because they have an anti-supernatural bias when coming to the Scripture. That's why God put the key in the front door. If you can't believe Genesis 1-1, you can't believe the rest. But if you can believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you can believe everything that follows. Now, with that said, there's only one way, rightly, and it was the view that was almost exclusively held for 1,900 years to approach this book by Jews and Christians alike It's called the historical view. And I gave you three reasons, which you may want to go back and study if you're new here today. But the catapult reason is that Jesus saw this as history, not as allegory, not as a parable, not as some moral lesson, but as a real person named Jonah, swallowed by a real fish, spit out on real land to preach to a real people. 
Now, with that said, I want to begin by reading our text. It sounds like you have found it. Jonah chapter 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard. We're going to pick up in verse 4 this morning. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has come. Uh, This calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming, inc- becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, last week, we noted here in the first chapter, we find Jonah in three different relationships. We just began to touch on it last week, Jonah in relationship to the Lord. If you're taking notes, uh, there's a note-taking outline in the bulletin. If you're new, there's a place online. We want to first consider Jonah in relationship to the Lord. Now, if you remember, the account opens with Jonah's commission. We read, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Three commands in verse 2. You should have them underlined or circled by now. Arise, go, and cry. They really summarize Jonah's, God's immediate will for Jonah. Uh, This was God's plan for him. These are not three suggestions. These are imperatives. These are commands. But if your heart is out of sync, like Jonah's was at this point, you don't want them to be commands. You may want them to be only suggestions. Go to Nineveh, the great city. And it's called the great city. Nineveh, if you remember, was the capital of Assyria. And it was a huge city, as we will see when we come to the third chapter. It was a gigantic city in this time in human history, and it was even bigger than its successor that's called Babylon the Great. 
But Jonah, nonetheless, is the very first missionary, the first Jewish man to go to a Gentile people. And of course, archaeology, not to mention the biblical account, reveals much about these particular people. Now, the journey from where he lives in Galilee all the way to Nineveh is about 500 miles. As we noted, these Old Testament prophets were by no stretch wimps. They were men's men. And they were in condition. And by the way, you should do everything you can to stay in condition. I don't want to be disqualified from preaching because I threw my health away. And some people are digging a grave with their own spoon. Listen, if you have the genetics where you have situations you can't control, we get that. God's grace is sufficient. But we need to be good stewards. So it was not the distance that bothered the man, of course. It was the place. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. The message that he was to preach, it's recorded in chapter 3 and in verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the message. Go to Nineveh, and this is what I want you to cry out. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in the English Bible, five words in the Hebrew text. Now, notice here in verse 1, at the end of verse 2, as to why he is to go there and preach it. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Paraphrased, God is saying, I've had it up to here. The aroma of their sins has come into heaven like a stink. So his mission was to go cry against it, to announce judgment, Not so much to inform them of specific sins, for they were covered over in them. They knew their sin, but the judgment that that sin was going to bring. And if you were here last time, we looked at even some of the archaeological records that detailed the heinousness and the wickedness of these depraved people. They wrote about it. They put it on their stones because they were proud of it. It was the hallmark of what they thought of themselves. And beyond the archaeological record, a hundred years later, there's another prophet who comes along, and his name is Nahum. And of course, by that time, that generation had repented of their parents' repentance, but still you get a descriptive feel of what this people were like. Immoral, brutal, unmerciful, a perverted people. They were wicked and inhumane, and this is where God wants to send his man. And by the way, God never gave him a promise that he would be successful. In fact, he might have only expected to find his head on a pole by the end of a week. Yet the wonder of it all is that in spite of all their wickedness, God still cared about these people. Yet 40 days in Nineveh, will be overthrown was a message of grace. It was a message of warning because it was not a hard, fast prophecy. It was conditioned on their response. And by the way, people don't need grace unless they see sin for what it is. And if you do not see premarital sex as evil, if you do not see extramarital sex, adultery as evil, if you don't see homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion and greed and drunkenness and all these things as evil, then you don't really have a need for grace. But when we see sin as God sees it, then we see our need to flee to the cross. So God was extending grace because he cared for these people. 
and we should care for people as well. So here's Jonah's commission. There's his message. Now notice his response in verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Twice over repeated from the presence of the Lord because that's the real issue. It's God. And he wants to get as far away from Nineveh as he can. He knows that God is omnipresent that God goes in front of us, behind us, even before there's a word on our tongue. He knows what we're about to say. You cannot flee from the literal presence of the Lord, but his reasoning is, if I get far enough away, God can't really use me and influence me to win these wicked people. Now, Tarshish was a city that was thought by Phoenician sailors to be at the very ends of the earth. Here's a map that we looked at last week. Remember, he is from the Galilee region, about three miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, gath Hefer, uh, Joppa, that's Tel Aviv today. It's out on the coast of Israel. And so it's about a 500-mile trip. So he wants to go in the opposite direction. Now, in the last 7,500 years, liberal theologians sadly influencing some evangelicals. Why people ever read William Barclay is beyond me. I only read him as a good illustration of what a liberal believes. He denies most of the major miracles in the Bible, but evangelicals quote him all the time, and they quote all these commentaries who don't know which end is up. Why would you read a commentary by a lost man to get his insights on the scripture? The fact is, is Herodotus, who lived 425 years before Christ, definitively identified Tarshish as being in Spain. The point is, it's 2,500 miles from Joppa. It's about 3,000 miles from Nineveh. Now, some have said the reason he fled was because he was a coward. I went through that last time. This man has none of the marks of a coward. And remember, he's a prophet of God. None of God's prophets are scary cats. And remember, you didn't choose to be a prophet. God appointed you to be a prophet. In addition, some say, well, he was a bigoted Hebrew. He didn't want to go to pagan Gentiles. They argue that he is a reflection of what Israel was at that point, that since they are God's chosen people, that God cares about them, then why should we care about those lost Gentiles? And again, we went through that and why that is not true. Really, the reason he fled is a theological reason, and that's not some eisegesis decision. It comes from the text itself in chapter 4 and verse 2. The reason he fled is because he was a patriot. He prayed, that is Jonah, he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He didn't want to preach this message of grace because he knew if they repented, then God would relent. God would turn away from his wrath. Now remember, in the introductory message, we said that whenever you study an Old Testament book, it's very important to ask at what time frame in Israel's history is the book being written. When you're able to identify the time frame, it just makes the book come alive. Remember, the kingdom had split the 12 tribes into 10 northern called Israel at this point, and two southern after the larger of the two, Judah. So he is a prophet to the northern kingdom. 
And they're living in sin and in idolatry. And during the same time, there are three contemporaries that preach with him. Their names are Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah. And Jonah's colleagues, their message was quite simple. Among other things, God is sick and tired of your idolatry. God hates your unfaithfulness to him. And if you do not repent, then I'm going to bring a people down from the north, i.e. the Assyrians, again, whose capital is Nineveh, and they are going to carry you away as my disciplinary agents. So you put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Now, as much as I love the United States of America, it's certainly not God's chosen nation. There's only one nation in the history of man that was chosen by God, and that is Israel. But suppose for the sake of argument, you knew that God was going to destroy North Korea. However, if you went and preached to the North Koreans, then God would spare the North Koreans. But at the same time, you know that there will come a time when those children of those people who repented will not repent and they will absolutely decimate and crush the United States. Would you let them perish so you'd be done with the problem? Or would you go and preach to them? What precisely would you do? Well, Jonah knows precisely what he's going to do. He loves Israel. He puts two and two together. If Hosea's message is true, if Amos's message is true, and Isaiah's message is true, and he knows it is, if Nineveh is spared, then Israel will be crushed. But if they're judged, Israel will be saved. So that's Jonah in relationship to the Lord. That's mostly by way of review. Now we want to dig in a little bit further, verses 4 through 16, and we want to consider Jonah in relationship to the sailors. We just finished reading in verse 3 how he went to Joppa, found a ship, paid the fare, went down into it, fled from the presence of the Lord. So he resigns as a prophet. He he decides he's going to become a Taurus. He decides he wants to take a cruise on a Mediterranean ship. He will learn that while he wants to turn in his prophet's badge, you cannot resign as a prophet. And we'll look at that further next time. But the real issue is God has given him a clear mission. His will is not fuzzy. It's specific. And he's rejecting it. And by the way, it's easy to discard Jonah's reasons for not doing what God has told him to do when we don't do what we should do. There's a great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's a participle, it literally reads, as you go, make disciples. Now, we have kind of changed the meaning of that verse in the last 75 years. One popular campus group said, no, he's commanding us to do discipleship. Nothing could be further from the truth. As you go, as you go where, as you go everywhere you go, it's not a missionary verse, go to Africa, go to Korea, go to China. As you go, Christian, everywhere you go, you're to make converts. Put the five great commissions found in the New Testament together. It's crystal clear. The emphasis is make converts. How do you make converts? You've got to share the gospel. What do you do with these new converts? You baptize them in the name of the triune God. Then what do you do with them? Then you kick in discipleship, but there's no real true discipleship if you're not going and making disciples. And that's what's happened in America today. The average Christian in America no longer reaches out to lost people to try to win them 
to Christ. And we wonder why we're going down the tubes. The fewer true Christians, the darker it will get and the more dismal life will be. Now, I want you to notice the cause-effect relationship between verses 3 and 4. The Lord, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. So Jonah's fleeing, God's following, Jonah's running, God is chasing after Jonah. And while you can try to flee from the will of God, you cannot flee from the presence of God. Verse 4 is very clear. The Lord hurled a great wind, and the ship began to break up. It began to creak and crack, and some of those dowels were probably popping. Verse 3 says, Jonah rose up to flee. Verse 4 says, the Lord hurled a great wind. The Hebrew text literally reads, the Lord picked up a great wind and hurled it into the sea. What a contrast. Jonah has rejected God's will, but God comes after him. And we can come up with our little excuses, but God, if we really know him, will come after us. Now listen to me this morning as your pastor. God is a sovereign God. And he's a providential God. Not only does he rule the decrees of the world and the time frame of the world that we live in, but his providence extends to the details of your life. He doesn't even watch a sparrow fall to the ground without his notice. He sees everything that is about you. And so God in response, because he cares about Jonah, is going after Jonah. He hurled a great wind. The word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, for instance, of of Saul, who who took a javelin and hurled it at David because he didn't like the message. The point is, is that he is resisting God, but God is sourced in this storm. You know, we speak a lot about, you know, I heard the weatherman the other day, we'll talk about mother weather, mother nature is going to give us a big blast here this weekend all the way up the coast. I don't know anything about mother nature, but I know a whole lot about Father God. Listen, Father God is the one who's over the circumstances of this world. And let me just say parenthetically, there is an increase of volcanoes and tsunamis. We had a a volcano slash tsunami yesterday. Terrible, terrible event. Hurricanes, droughts, flooding, Now, these are not the birth pangs. People today say, well, these are the birth pangs Jesus spoke about. These are not the birth pangs. The birth pangs do not start. The scripture is clear. We studied it in the Revelation. We compared Revelation 6 with the Olivet Discourse. They don't begin until the church is removed. But there's an increase in these things because before you can have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And God is reminding us that this world is nearly full term, and one of these days the water is going to break, and then you'll see the birth pangs that will come in those seal trumpet in bold judgments. But the point is, is that God is over everything in this world, and if you are a child of God, he has a special affection and affinity towards you. If you are a born-again Christian and you are running in the opposite direction, or if you claim to be a born-again Christian and you are running in the opposite direction and God doesn't come after you, you've got your families mixed up. You're not really one of his. 
Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says. He's quoting Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Have you ever had any fainting spells? Well, these Hebrew Christians had, not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. And some Christians have fainting spells when it comes to walking with God, and they have forgotten God's discipline, that it's an expression of his goodness. Now, the writer of the Hebrews is going to remind them, and by application us, of three critical truths concerning heavenly discipline. And while we're here, let me just say that if you want to read a good biography of a man who needed some perspective, read the biography of Asaph. It's in Psalm 73. He nearly fainted. He nearly quit when he went through all these problems and he looked at all the pagans around him who seemed to be living high off the hog, and yet he was suffering. Let me read a few verses from that psalm. Asaph wrote verse 3, Psalm 73, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. That means they're living big. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. And then God gives them an insight. It's recorded in the middle of the psalm. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, until, I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. What he needed was perspective, and what we need is perspective concerning the discipline of God. Listen to the next verse that the writer of the Hebrews quotes. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, let me say parenthetically, there are many reasons why people suffer in this world. First of all, Christian and non-Christian alike suffer just because we live in a fallen world. When sin entered into the world, not only did man fall, but creation fell. And so all of creation groans and is in travail looking for a new heaven and a new earth. And so because of this world that we live in, there's common suffering. There's tornadoes. We've seen the tragic tornadoes in this past month. It's history and most people's minds, but it's still going on this morning. We've seen fires destroy entire neighborhoods. We saw our country hit yesterday by a tsunami. We saw a cyclone last week. We've seen earthquakes. We've seen it on and on and on. It just doesn't seem to stop. And that's what we call common suffering. Christians and non-Christians alike, they get cancer, they have heart problems, they can be doing everything right, but they still have those problems. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, that's a good thing. Because God puts man on notice. Had God left us in an idyllic kind of Garden of Eden, we might have concluded everything's just fine. But it's not. And so the thorns and thistles, the aches and pains and everything else, it's an expression of God's grace to get us prepared. We need to be discerning as to whether our suffering is part of the common suffering of man or whether it's part of the disciplinary hand of our loving God. To listen again to today's program, use the Search the Scriptures app with Carl Brogy, available in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or get a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and request program JNH3. 
By the way, both Dr. Brogy and his wife, Audrey, have podcasts available on the Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcast platforms. Pastor Carl's program is Search the Scriptures, and Audrey's program is Rare But Real. Check them out. Tomorrow we'll continue our third message in the study of the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.